Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You might not think of the Navy as being in the space business, yet the Naval Research Laboratory has a mission that spans pretty much every domain from underwater to space. In fact, there's a new director of the lab's Naval Center for Space Technology. Stephen Meyer joins me now in studio. Dr. Meyer, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me here today. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to share what we're doing over at NCST and NRL. Tell us about NCST. What is the mission and what's the Navy's concern in space? And then we'll get into how you interact with the other space domain agencies. Sure. I mean, our main goal is really to envision, rapidly develop, deploy, and operate space systems. And in addition to that, I have three ground stations where we carry out all of that on the operations side. So it truly is starting from basic concept and designs and orbitology, working through the build of a satellite, anything from the size of a thermos, which they are viewing as a CubeSat, all the way up to, say, 15,000 pounds. So we do everything from that range. We have full end-to-end testing facilities where you do things in space, such as shock, like when the rocket takes off, vibe, when it's rattling back and forth, thermal vacuum, when you get into space, it's a vacuum, and these other ones called electromagnetic interference and coupling chambers, when there's a lot of electrical components that are interacting with each other. So we have full end-to-end test capabilities that do that. So yeah, I I view us as really to provide the nation with new capabilities. We are really a first mover. We do one of a kind. We do high risk type of projects. You know, that's our job. And then once we're successful at that, we transition these programs over to the national space community, who then might put out a bunch of carbon copies of them. But we're the ones that burn the wrist down and do a lot of the hard work. It's actually quite hard to do something that's never been done before especially in space. And what is the Navy's use of these? Is it primarily navigation? Is it weather and oceanography? Is it surveilling the enemy or all of the above? Sure. It's several different areas I'll I'll run through. One is communications because, of course, you need to be communicating globally with uh, other ships around the world and other services as well. So communication satellites is one. Uh, Number two would be weather. You know, we need to figure out where you're getting into a storm, it's hot, it's cold, whatever, other things along those lines. So that's very important. But with the weather, also, I'll say is space weather as well. If the sun has a solar flare or coronal mass ejection, those uh, electrons and protons and everything come down and they disrupt communication. So there's kind of two components to weather. ISR, which is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, that's essentially what we use to identify anything from a canoe to a freighter. Who is it? Who are they? Friend or foe? Along those lines. So that's ISR. Long-range fires are something that's new. Uh, Most people might not have heard of that, but there's a lot of emphasis in these precision uh, missile attacks, which are about anywhere from 500 kilometers or greater where an adversary would launch it out. And 500 kilometers is about 300 miles or so. So anything 500 plus kilometers, long-range fires, space situational awareness. We need to understand where our adversaries are. If we want to do a mission or an operation, boy, if we have three or four adversarial satellites looking on us, it's going to be kind of an unsuccessful operation. And then last, I would say, is more uh, proximity missile warning, you know, offensive, defensive, ship-to-ship, which are much shorter 
scales. So that's how the Navy, you know, really utilizes space. We need it for our operations. It's critical for the service in order to be successful at their mission. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Meyer, director of the Naval Center for Space Technology, part of the Naval Research Laboratory. And how do you avoid duplication with all of these areas of operation? NOAA, You've got the Air Force, you've got mm-hmm. Space Force, you've got the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, yeah. or does the Navy contribute data to that effort? Yes, I'd say we avoid duplication by focusing on some of the Navy's maritime needs, some of the things that I just mentioned. But the other services and agencies also leverage off of that just as much. You know, we leverage off of their satellites and they leverage off of ours. And quite honestly, it's there's a lot going on in space. And I'll just be honest, there is a certain amount of duplication that goes on. You just can't help it. You know, when you have many large federal agencies, NASA, the NRO, NGA, you know, everyone, NOAA, doing these types of satellites, that you do your best. It's a pretty large organization. I have roughly about a thousand people, government contractor. Uh, and into a couple hundred millions in terms of budget. So we have our tentacles in a lot of different places. So we have a good sense, I would say, you know, where we're going to be avoiding duplication with other agencies. And I suppose you could argue that within the limitations of the particular sensors on a particular bird, that that redundancy is probably resiliency also and failover capability among the different components. That must come up also. Yes. I mean, we build in resiliency, I guess, through yeah, redundancy and proliferation of different sensors, other things along those lines, the ability to maneuver, all of that kind of, to me, is under the resiliency part. But yes, most of the components on a satellite are have some type of redundancy associated. If the first line fails, so to speak, you have a backup system in place. But what I mean is, yeah. if needed, the Air Force could perhaps provide connectivity for the Navy and vice versa if something happened to a particular asset in space? Sure. Now, I I understand your question a little more in depth. Yes, that is true that we do share information between all the different services. But here's what I'm going to throw in the big kicker. So ultimately, commercial space is spending more money in the U.S. and globally than the U.S. government is in space. Just some statistics, you know, right now, this is FY20, I think that the global space economy, and that is every country's investment in aerospace industries, rocket launchers, payloads for satellites is about $450 billion. And the prediction up to 2030 is $1 to $3 trillion of a global space economy. So it's a pretty large range, one to three, because they just don't know. It's, it's increasing exponentially. As I mentioned you know, in the past, uh, that you always will see something going on with space in the newspaper or the TV every day. In this country alone, venture capital has invested in $28.9 billion into venture capital space companies. And that's up from $5.8 billion in 2019. So we're talking like a 50 or 60% increase in venture capital investment. The other areas that have really reduced the entry barriers are, as everyone knows about SpaceX and putting on launch vehicles, they have made launch vehicles used to be a lot of, there's cost uh, relationships and be, they were roughly 
believe 20 years ago, about $10,000 per kilogram. And a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So just think in rough numbers, it's going to be, you know, $5,000 a pound. Now we are down to about $100 per kilogram, which is about $50 per pound. Or two orders of magnitude less. Yes, two orders of magnitude. Huge drops. And those are like entry barriers to get into the system. The other part is uh, ground systems. There are Amazon has ground systems all over the area, OneWeb, others, um, and the U.S. services can leverage that as well. Uh, so there's a lot of that. And then also all of the satellites that are going up there. You know, as we've seen from, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to put a plug in for any company, but Starlink, Amazon, Kuiper are putting them up. The services can leverage those just as much as they can leverage in other services. They probably actually have even more opportunity to leverage commercial space. I mean, if you look at the war in Ukraine right now, a lot of the imagery, a whole lot of it is all coming from commercial satellites that were only once in the DOD world. Now commercial kind of owns that. So fair to say that the lab that you run then and the naval space enterprise in general, like the NGA, for example, is looking to leverage those commercial services where it makes sense and then concentrate your efforts on what might be uniquely military. Yes, that's exactly right. There are specific military operations that I believe, such as space uh, control or space situational awareness, are going to stay in the military regime. Because a lot of the other satellites that we are, I've mentioned are essentially communication satellites. They're sending down bits. You know, it's all about bits. It's all about video. It's all about, you know, getting you know, communication, spending all that to get underserved areas, connectivity to the rest of the world. There will be, for example, in those two areas that are going to be kind of just staying in the defense, but then for basic communications, for weather, for um, imagery, it's all going to be kind of moving towards commercial. A lot of the organizations I work with closely, uh, I mean, just I was at two conferences recently, the NRO and NASA, and their mantra is buy it first, build it second. So that's the kind of the direction that we're going in. Yeah, the old COTS preference is now yeah. moving into space. Yeah, I mean, five or six years ago, nobody was investing in space. They didn't think it would give you an ROI or net present value, whatever you want to use. So, yeah, we at NCST then are grabbing that and working with commercial companies, several of them, in order to leverage our capabilities and also understand their business models. Uh, Right. So Amazon's network then, for example, is a lot more than just trying to track shipments of Chinese-made hair curlers into the Midwest. All right. Again, my guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer, director of the Naval Center for Space Technology. And you bring a lot of experience to this job, newly appointed as director. You've been in other space agencies, in particular NASA, and also with commercial world itself, the contractor world. Tell us a little bit about your own background. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Yes, I have spanned both sides of the coin. I'm in my private industry. I've worked at Lockheed Martin, at Perspecta, at um, Raytheon. So I have some experience in each of those. And then I've also done a lot in the government with NGA, NRO, CIA, NASA, uh, the Naval Research Labs. So it's, and it's actually, I feel, a really good balance to have, you know, so you're not just looking at 
a system from one perspective. You know, particularly if you're putting out a request for proposal or writing a request for proposal, being on both sides of the coin, understanding how because there's a huge space industrial base, government and the U.S. space industrial base will always be coupled together. I mean, they create jobs and technologies and economies. So I at least have that experience, and most of it has been in the space world in terms of that. So I have a really good understanding about all the technologies going on one side, and also really how it operates. It's been interesting. NRL tell you something is we have a business model that's like a private industry business model, and all my experience there has helped actually joining NRL because we have something called the Navy's Working Capital Fund. So the way we work, almost all of our money at NRL, outside of a small amount for buildings, comes from external sponsors. So I essentially have a revenue stream. I am not a congressional line item. There's zero congressional line item. So we have to go out and fight for our money. We write proposals to all the space agencies. We write white papers to generate new ideas. We have to bring in money at the end of the day in order to be successful. So I have like a P&L. And granted, we're a federal agency, so our goal is to break even for the most part. A couple million above, a couple million below, that's okay. But you know, at least marrying those two up, it's it's quite good. The experiences on both sides. But all the money you take in, I guess they're grants, maybe, but they have to come from federal sources, correct? Actually, there's not much on grants. It's work. We are uh, an actual performer, is what we are. So we are building satellite buses, which is kind of the structure, the mechanical, the electrical, the thermal around. Kind of like your car has an engine. The chassis. Payload, yeah, and then the rest is the chassis around it. So, no, we're building actual satellites, a full thing. This is very small amounts of grants that's there. It's mainly all work focused on uh, actual builds. And just a question on the talent question. If you look at another domain, cybersecurity, the government endlessly complains, and rightly so in many cases, Mm -hmm. they can't compete with industry for talent. In the space domain, where you have this burgeoning industry with all of this money flowing in to form new companies and new capabilities, do you find it's tough to get people to work in space technologies from the inside of government? Uh, The answer I'd say is yes in my organization. And that's a good and a bad thing. The bad thing is I lose people. The good thing is my people are sought after. Uh, I have people that try to cherry pick from, honestly, SpaceX, Amazon, other places, because I, I do feel, and I'm not just saying this, you know, I've been on both sides of the coin and traveled, you know, I have 25, 30 years of, of experience. The people at NRL are really top notch at NRL in general and also at NCST in my organization. So a lot of them will come out of school, they'll spend a couple of years in NCST, and then they get job offers from somewhere. And it's hard to compete with those salaries. <laughs> to be quite honest. But a lot of the private industry companies know that, hey, if I get someone from NRL, NCST, they're going to be top-notch. And the talent wars are out there. Right now, it is truly a job seekers market, you know, still. Uh, all these 25, 30-year-olds, younger millennials, yeah, they're, they're in very good positions in order to get what they want, you know, in terms of telecommuting, in terms of salary and other benefits along those lines. So, yeah, there is a bit of a talent war and space has gotten so exciting and so much opportunity that it is a bit of a challenge. So we try to create more of a balance of life. It is the government. 
you do have a good vacation, you have separate sick leave, you know, there's 11 paid federal holidays. So it is really truly is more of a quality of life. And that does count for something. Having worked in private industry, when sometimes you might work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, that happens. So, um, but we offer that. But I would say a lot of my leadership team is still on board. And that's what makes us unique. I have two divisions. I have division heads, four division heads and deputy and nine branch heads. And all of them have spent their entire career at NRL. So they're very deep. They're very good. And they have done everything, like I said, the end-to-end side of orbitology and a concept and a design all the way to build, test, and operate. So there's a lot of depth at the organization. And on a summer night that's clear, do you ever run out with binoculars and try to look at your satellites going by? (laughs) I wish, but the D.C. uh, (laughs) light scattering and... uh, Humidity, unfortunately, don't make it the uh, the best uh, viewing opportunities. So, the best place you might be able to see something is at the U.S. Uh, Naval Observatory. You know, they're a little bit up on the hill, and if it's a clear night, they actually make observations there of stars every once in a while. But even them, they said they get maybe one or two months out of the entire year. You know, where they can do some viewing. So it's possible, but they also have a really big telescope <laughs> compared to some binoculars. So. Well, I recommend the Mojave Desert. Yes. Yes, when you're further down south, I mean, I used to do infrared and visible astronomy. I worked at like Kitt Peak, uh, Mount Lebanon, and places down in Arizona. And yes, the way the planet is worth the upper part of the Milky Way galaxy, we're looking down, you do see an amazing amount of things. It is really dark, pitch black. You see the satellites, you see the stars, There's and it's clear, particularly if you're on a mountaintop at about eight or 9,000 feet. So it was, it's awe-inspiring. It's dark, but it's alive, isn't it? Yes. All right. Very much so. Dr. Stephen Meyer is director of the Naval Center for Space Technology, part of the Naval Research Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I appreciate the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. FX Gain Supply.